بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله وشكر لله we have now reached lesson 62 in the radiant light covering the life of the Prophet Sallallahu And for the past few sessions, we've been looking at the things that led up to the Battle of Badr and making their way to the plains of Badr. And now we come to that critical juncture, Iltiqa al-Jam'ani, the meeting of the two forces in the first full-fledged battle in the history of Islam known as the Battle of Badr. And it's quite difficult to tell battle stories from the seerah because there's so many details for one and then when you get to the actual battle itself you're looking at the narratives of different people and what they experienced when they were there. So you essentially have to piece together what this person experienced and what that person experienced and what individual people witnessed happen on the battlefield. So putting all of that together can be quite a challenge, but we try our best to go through all of the details that lead up to this confrontation. <coughs> now, we know that the Muslims went out from Medina looking for the caravan of Abu Sufyan and then it later became a choice between going for the caravan of Abu Sufyan or going for the Quraysh who had made their way north. And soon it became a certainty that it was going to be a confrontation between the Muslims and Quraysh. But from the initial journey out of Medina, they did not set out for the purpose of engaging in a battle. They didn't set out with the intention of battle. Had they set out with the intention of battle, we can reason that they would have prepared more, they would have brought more equipment, they would have brought more men, but they weren't anticipating battle. So now we have 313 or so Muslims who are lightly armed with 70 or so camels, two horses, now about to face off hundreds and hundreds, basically three to one of Quraysh who come with their camels, with their horses, with their weaponry, with their armor, with their supplies, both for their animals to keep them strong and supplies for themselves. So the Muslims went out and they weren't seeking war, but war came to them. What about Quraysh? Were Quraysh seeking war? When they went out, they were seeking to prevent the caravan of Abu Sufyan from being seized. And they were ready for war. They were ready for battle. They received the news from Dhamdham when uh, Abu Sufyan sent him out. He came with the news of the caravan being under threat. So they marched out armed to the teeth, ready to fight. But when the news reached them that the caravan of Abu Sufyan was safe, they decided to spend three days at Badr in drunken revelry, drinking, partying, and listening to the songstress, the singing girls playing the tambourine and the duff and so on. So their plan was not initially, once they realized the caravan was safe, 
they said, let us spend three days here and just have a party. And if you look at what they say, you understand that the purpose wasn't just to chill out. The purpose was to show, to, to make a show of force. By them coming nearly a thousand strong, armed to the teeth, settling at Badr and partying for three days straight, it was a show of force, hoping that the word would spread among all of the Arabs in the Arabian Peninsula that the Quraysh are not to be trifled with. So that was a message they wanted to send out. So the Muslims go out, they're not certain about war. They didn't think there would be fighting. Quraysh were certain, or they were certain they were prepared to meet in combat. And then they thought it wasn't going to happen. But as the days grow nearer to the confrontation, more and more certainty is arising between the Muslims as well as Quraysh that actually this is, going to be a, this is going to be a fight. And so we come to the 17th of Ramadan. The 17th day of Ramadan, we know that Quraysh are camped out on this Udwatul Quswa and the Muslims are on the nearer side. On the morning of the 17th, as we draw near to the battle, Quraysh sent out one of their scouts by the name of Umair ibn Wahab al-Jumahi. And his job was to go all the way around the plains of Badr to estimate the size of the Muslim army. So think about this. You have one force here, and then there's hills and sand dunes and rocky terrain. And then on the other side, you have another force. If you want to estimate that force's size, how are you going to get their number? You can't just walk from your camp all straight to their camp. Then you're going to show your hand. Oh, we're trying to size you up. Instead, you need to go around those planes, do it basically a 360. And in that 360, you go all the way around and you scout and count the number of troops your enemy has. So Umair bin Wahb al-Jumahi circles around the plains of Badr to go around to the Muslim side secretly and try to count how many Muslims are there. He gets back to the Qurayshi camp and he tells Quraysh, there are around 300 men. But I have this bad feeling that a huge catastrophe is on the horizon. So he knows that they, Quraysh, outnumber the Muslims. He reports back 300. But in seeing them, he got a sense of their morale and their state, and that inspired fear in him. He feels that despite their greater numbers, Quraysh are at a disadvantage. And so he said, I feel there's a huge catastrophe looming on the horizon. Why did he say that? He says, there are young men of Yathrib waiting to strike death upon you. A group of people who have no help other than their swords. Why does he say this? Because if they have their horses and camels and lances and spears and arrows and swords and armor, but the Muslims only have swords, who do you think is going to fight the fiercest? It will be the Muslims because they are outnumbered and outarmed. So you have to fight with all that you can give. So he knew that was a reality. He said, they are a group of people who have no help other than their swords. He says, by Allah, I don't think you'll be able to kill anyone among them 
until they kill at least one of you. So if 300 of the Muslims are on that side and each of them kills one, how many of Quraysh are going to be killed in battle? 300 out of 900. So if 300 of you die, he said, then what pleasure will you gain from winning? How is that going to really benefit you in the long run? So he goes to get the intelligence to see how many Muslims are there. And he reports back the intelligence. But he adds this advice. He's basically telling them, we don't want this fight. So Abu Jahl hears what Umair says. And he adds, we didn't ask for your advice. We didn't ask for all of this. We just need the numbers. We did not ask you for advice. So what this indicates is that although we're coming closer and closer to that confrontation, there was, there was still people among Quraysh on their side who didn't really want to get into this conflict. Even as we draw nearer and nearer to that confrontation, there were still people there who didn't want to get into this. He sees that and he's giving them this advice. We shouldn't go forward with this. It's not worth it. Abu Jahl, in his obstinacy and arrogance, he says, I didn't ask you for any advice. He wants to move ahead. And we see how he pushes people into conflict, even those who didn't initially want to be in conflict. So it's mentioned that some people had already left from the Qurayshi side. So among those people who didn't leave, but who was trying to prevent this from breaking out into a full-fledged conflict was a man by the name of Hakim ibn Hizam. Does anyone remember Hakim ibn Hizam? It's tough with Sira because there's so many names and tribes and clans, but if you think back, you'll, you'll remember this person, Hakim ibn Hizam. And we say about Hakim ibn Hizam now, radiallahu anhu, but at this time he wasn't a Muslim. But you remember from the Meccan period that Hakim ibn Hizam was Khadija's nephew whose house they purchased when the Prophet and Khadija got married. They bought the house from him. And he would go on to purchase as his servant Zayd ibn Haritha radiallahu anhu. And he was also one of the people of Quraysh who would secretly send food to the Muslims when they were suffering from that economic embargo, that boycott in Mecca. So he was among those who would secretly send food. So you sense that there's, there's family ties and there's a soft spot in his heart for the Prophet and the community. Yet here he is at the plains of Badr right before the battle. So. You know, his whole story, you know, this is Badr, this is way early on, two years or so after the Hijrah, yet he doesn't become a Muslim until right at the conquest of Mecca. Right? He receives the news of Abu Sufyan of safety. He goes to the Prophet wasallam, and he embraces Islam, and then he's safe after the conquest of Mecca. Right? And his story continues. Hakim bin Hizam died uh, at 120 years of age. 120. So this means he lived on through the Khulafa, uh, the, the Khilafah of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Uthman, and Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhum, as well as Muawiyah up to Marwan after him. Yazid and Marwan. So he 
he dealt with these people after them as well. And he has a long story about Hakim and Hizam. But here, he is not a Muslim yet, but his son is. His son is on the other side with the Muslims at Badr. So Hakim ibn Hizam, he doesn't want this fight to break out. One, because of family ties. Two, his son's on the other side. And he doesn't have that great animosity towards the Prophet and Islam. But there's tribal affiliations and allegiances. And a lot of people come out here reluctantly. So Hakim ibn Hizam, he goes to Utbah ibn Rabi'ah. And Utbah ibn Rabi'ah, I mean, his story is very prominent at Badr, as you'll see. But Utbah ibn Rabi'ah also didn't really want war. So here you have Hakim ibn Hizam, who doesn't want war. And he goes to Utbah ibn Rabi'ah, who didn't want war. And he encourages Utbah to go and mediate a truce. You know, we call this a sulh. A sulh is a truce or an armistice where both sides agrees to cease any hostility for a certain period of time and with certain conditions. So he goes to Utbah to encourage him to engage in this truce. He says, why don't you go and take the diya, to offer the, the diya for uh, Amr al-Hadrami? Why don't you work on this as the terms of the truce? Basically, because the Muslims were in conflict and Amr al-Hadrami was killed, if they can work out a truce where the blood money is paid, the Quraysh could be satisfied that that has been met, so their honor is intact, and it avoids hostilities. So he goes and encourages him to get the diya for the blood money for Amr al-Hadrami. So Utbah hears this idea and he likes it. He says, if that will prevent bloodshed, then I'll, I'll, play the, I'll pay the blood money on behalf so that it can end the hostilities, right? He's willing to sacrifice his money, and dia is not, not cheap, you know, 100 camels. That's, that's a massive amount of money. He says, I will pay the dia if it will prevent bloodshed. So then he goes to the relatives of Amr al-Hadrami, telling them that I will give the money, I will pay the dia. And then Hakim ibn Hizam, he tells them, you have to take his advice. Take the advice of Utbah. So Utbah now is, it's really hard to get a full grasp of what's going on if you don't live in that tribal life, and you don't know the tribal mentality. Because there's, there's ob tribal obligations and expectations. There's also your own personal pride and prestige in the tribe, right? So Hakim ibn Hizam encouraged it. Utbah liked the idea. He goes to the relatives of Amr al-Hadrami and tells them that he'll pay the blood money. But of course, there's other tensions there. So he goes on to say more. He says, if someone should accuse you of cowardice, if someone should accuse you of being cowards, mention my name and say that Utbah was the one who became the coward. So he's willing to take on the word coward to deflect it from others and take it for himself if that means this will prevent bloodshed. So if anyone's going to call you the family of the slain cowards for not going to war, 
tell them that Utbah is the one who became a coward by paying the blood money. Tell them that, even though you know I'm not a coward, right? He's not going to just say, tell them I'm a coward. He'll make sure that they know that he's not a coward, even though you know I'm not a coward. For by Allah, what will you gain by fighting this man? If you're able to defeat him, you'll be killing your own father, your own brother, your own cousin, your own nephew, and so on. Because the Prophet ﷺ is Qurashi. He's from them. He says, how would you like it that you are amongst the murderers of your own brother, your own father, your own cousin, your own nephew? So he's appealing to them. He's saying, listen, I will deflect all of the charges of cowardice. I will take it on for myself. Let everyone call me the coward because I paid the blood money. But this is the best course of action to avoid bloodshed. This is, this is Utbah. He says, let us return. Let's go back to Mecca. Let us leave Muhammad and his companions to the rest of the Arabs, meaning the other tribes that are not affiliated with us. Leave him to the rest of those tribes. If they defeat him, that's what you want. You want to defeat him. So if they defeat him, you get what you want. But it's not coming at your hands. And if it's the other case, if it's the other way around where he defeats those other Arab tribes, then surely, Utbah says, in his honor is our honor as well. Because here is a Qurayshi defeating other tribes. That's honor for us. We're Quraysh. So if he loses against the other tribes, that's what you came here for. That's what you want. So you get what you want through other means. If he beats those other tribes, then his honor is going to be our honor. We, we get that. So it's a win-win situation for us if we pay the blood money and leave. That was his reasoning. He says we will have an excuse for him to forgive us should he overcome those other Arab tribes and become very powerful? Because we're family. So the Prophet wasallam, you know, this is happening on the Qurayshi side, the campsite. The Prophet wasallam is close enough to where he could see the, the encampment of Quraysh. So he sees what's going on and he sees Utbah going around to the different tribesmen, the different elders. And the hadith says that Utbah was riding, going back and forth on a red camel. The red camels were like the, they're like the, the Lamborghinis of camels back then. They're the best of the best, the most expensive and valuable camels. He's going on this red camel and the Prophet ﷺ sees him going around and he says, if there's any good among the people, it's going to be with the one who has the red camel. If they obey him, they will have chosen the right path. And if only they had listened to him. If only they had listened. Now Hakim, he's gone to Utbah. Utbah went to the family. He's told them what to say. He's going to the others. Now Hakim goes to someone else to talk about this opportunity to save face and to leave and avoid bloodshed. He goes to none other than Abu Jahl. And by hearing that name Abu Jahl, you already know what's going to happen. You think he's going to go along with this? He's not going to go along with this. 
Hakim goes to Abu Jahl and he says, Utbah has agreed to pay the blood money of Amr al-Hadrami. So let us agree to this so that we can avoid bloodshed. Abu Jahl started to mock and make fun of Hakim ibn Hizam. He says, Ya Hakim, couldn't Utbah find a messenger other than you? So he's implying that you're this lowly underling, this lowly peon subordinate to Utbah. You know, he's playing on his, his pride. You're under Utbah, you're, you're beneath him, you're under his foot, he can just tell you what to do. So Hakim says, I'm not a messenger to him. I agree with the message. I don't want any bloodshed. Think about it. Who went to Utbah? It was Hakim's idea. He went to Utbah first. So he's saying, I'm not under him. I agree with this. But Abu Jahl, he pushes this. He says, by Allah, his chest, the chest of Utbah, has swelled up in fear at the sight of Muhammad and his companions. When he says the chest is swelled, it's filled with anxiety and fear. He's basically saying that Utbah is becoming cowardly and afraid when in seeing the Prophet ﷺ and the companions. Abu Jahl says, no, we will not return until Allah determines the battle between us and Muhammad. So Utbah, Hakim is talking to Abu Jahl, Abu Jahl is saying this, Hakim obviously brings the word back to Utbah. Remember, Hakim had the idea, Utbah liked the idea, he goes to the family of Amr al-Hadrami and suggests the idea. They're all for it. Abu Jah is not for it. And now he's calling Utbah a coward. It's, you have to put yourself in this position. This is a battlefield. The battle hasn't yet broke out. People are armed to the teeth. And someone, imagine someone in that moment just calls you a punk who's too scared to fight. And the battle's right there. As long as you turn and go to battle, you can fight. So the word gets back to Utbah, what Abu Jahl said. And Utbah says, huh, the coward? Well, the real coward will know whose chest is swollen with fear, mine or his. I'll show him who the real coward is. So now that, that Hamiyyatul Jahiliyyah, that, that pride of Jahiliyyah is within him, and it's overriding his intellect, causing him to discard that wise decision they were about to make. So he's told that, he, that Abu Jahl called him a coward. He says, oh, I'll show him who the coward is. And now, Utbah, angry, he asks for a helmet. They go and they look for helmets, but this guy's head is so big, Utbah's head is so big that none of the helmets could fit. He's putting on these different helmets, none of them fit. So he takes this, it's like a cloth, like a shawl, a part of it. He takes it and he wraps it around his head to serve as a makeshift helmet, a kind of cloth mighfar, a coif a piece of something that's going to protect the head from blows in battle. He wraps his cloth around his head and he's ready to fight now. So look at the turn of events. Just moments before, he's ready to pay blood money to end this bloodshed. 
And he tells them, if anyone accuses you of cowardice, then tell them my name and say that Utbah was the one who became a coward. But then when Abu Jahl actually calls him a coward, he just said he would, he would call himself a coward. Then when someone actually calls him a coward, the Hamiyah comes back, no, I can't have that. So he gets, the, he gets himself ready to go out in battle, and that's that. The peace treaty, the, the, the truce wasn't going to happen. All because of his pride. And there's a lesson in this. The Prophet ﷺ said that the initial push to pay the diya was a wise choice. And if only they had followed him in that, they would have had a good outcome. So if the hostilities could have cooled down, that would have been a good thing. And this shows you the Prophet ﷺ was not seeking a battle. It came to the Muslims at this point. But it was what it was. And now the battle is inevitable. Now in the history of battles in the seerah, we often read about how they're set up in the beginning. And we learn about this concept called the Mubaraza. The Mubaraza is usually how the battles start in the, among the ancient Arabs. It wouldn't be like you see in the movies where you have troops on this side aligned in rows and troops in, on this side aligned in rows and then finally someone issues the call and they lead this charge screaming into battle and they crash into each other. That's not how the battle was, would start. They would start first and foremost with what we call Mubaraza, which is one-to-one -one combat. Either one person versus one person while everyone's watching on both sides, or different sets of people, each one fighting one other person. And that's what happens at Badr. And this is used to build the morale and to destroy the morale of the losing side, whoever gets cut down. And then after that comes the confrontation, the iltiqa' al-jama'an, the meeting of the two forces. That is typically how battles start. But we learn in the Battle of Badr that the first fatality was not in the Mubaraza. The first fatality was not in that one-to-one -one combat. It was with an individual who was so filled with pride, he took an oath that led to his own death. So in the Seerah works, it mentions, Ibn Ishaq mentions this, that someone from the tribe of Abu Jahl named Al-Aswad Ibn Abdul Asad Al-Makhzumi was the first to be killed on the day of Badr. But it wasn't in one-to-one -one combat. It is mentioned in the Seerah works that this Al-Aswad ibn Abdul Asad was Sayyul Khuluq, a very ill-mannered, rude, contemptuous individual. He was foul in his behavior. And he swore an oath that he would get water from the cistern, the, the body of water that the Muslims had, or he would die trying. So he says this oath, I swear. I will get water from their side or I'll die trying. Well, guess what? He died trying. <laughs> That's what happened. So he attempted to sneak to the Muslim side to go and get this water where, where the Muslims were located. So this is telling you it's not the confrontation. He's sneaking. He's trying to sneak to get over there to get to the water. And as he's getting nearer and nearer, someone spots him. Who spots him? 
Does anyone know who spots him? Is Hamza. Sayyiduna Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Hamza sees him and then he goes and confronts him and faces him in combat. He goes right up to him, strikes him down with a blow that severed his leg below the knee. So he falls back and blood is pouring from his leg and he begins to crawl to that basin where the water is to to, so he can fulfill his oath because the Arabs were serious about their oaths. If he said he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He said, I'll do it or I'll die trying. You see, he's doing it even though one of his legs is chopped off below the knee. So he's dragging himself closer and closer to the basin. But of course, he can't move quickly. And Hamza goes and finishes him off. So he got there near to the basin, but he died trying. That was the first fatality, but that wasn't in the sense of combat. But he's a combatant, so it is what it is. After this comes the Mubaraza, the one-to-one confrontations, the one-to-one duels between individuals on the side of Quraysh and the side of the Muslims. So the Mubaraza would set the tone for the battle. If one side lost, it would be very demoralizing to them. It would really weaken their morale. And if one side were, was victorious in the Mubaraza, it would strengthen the morale and pump them up and make them even more eager to go into the battle. So it was at this time that Utbah ibn Rabi'ah, who was just called a coward, goes out armed with his turban wrapped like a helmet, calling for the Mubaraza. He's the one called, who calls for it. And those who were in the Mubaraza from the Qurayshi side were at the top of the list, Utbah ibn Rabi'ah. After that comes Utbah's younger brother, Shayba. And then after that comes Utbah's son, Al-Walid ibn Utbah. These were the three of Quraysh to be in that challenge of Mubaraza. Utbah, his brother, and his son. So they all came out into the plains and they said, who will come forth in battle with us? Who will get some? And immediately three young people from the Ansar stood up in their eagerness to accept this challenge. Three from the Ansar. They were Auf ibn al-Harith, Mu'awwid ibn al-Harith, brothers, and Abdullah ibn Rawaha, radiallahu anhum. They said, we'll battle you, we'll fight you one to one. Now they're wearing helmets. Utbah, his brother and son, can't recognize who they are. They don't know who they are because of the helmets obscuring their face. So they said, Man antum, man al qawm, who are you all? And they said, Nahnu ansaru Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We are the Ansar of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So they hear this and they know that these are not their fellow tribesmen. These are people from Yathrib. They're from Aws and Khazraj. They said, no, we want noble equals. We don't have any dispute with you. We have no conflict with you. We want our cousins. We want to fight our cousins. We have no conflict with the people of Yathrib, with the Aws and the Khazraj. We have nothing with you. We want our own. 
We want equal representatives in this one-to-one -one combat. So then one of them called out saying, Ya Muhammad, send forth equals to our people. This is so telling. You have to read between the lines here. Why did they respond the way they responded? It was utterly foreign for them that people from another tribe would have would want to confront them in one-to-one -one battle when they're not in any official conflict. What do they have to do with the Aus and the Khazraj? Are the Quraysh fighting the Aus and the Khazraj? No, they have conflict with their relatives. The idea that people from a far-off place in Medina, from different tribes, would want to fight them was very foreign because all battles were along tribal lines. So in their mind, if you're not fighting for the tribal asabiyah, why are you fighting? The idea that there's something that would transcend the tribal allegiances was foreign to them. But the Ansar are not fighting for tribal allegiances. They're not fighting because the Aus and Khazraj have conflict with Quraysh on a tribal level. They are there to fight because they are with Rasulullah and they are defending him and protecting him and fighting for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Something that supersedes, that is far superior to tribal conflicts. So, they called out to Muhammad saying, bring us our equals. And the Prophet sallallahu wanted to show Quraysh the strength of the Muslims. So he had those three young Ansari men come back. They came back to the Muslim side and he said very kind words to them and encouraged them. And then he told some of the Quraysh to go out and engage in this Mubaraza. So he said to these individuals of Quraysh from the Wahajirun, Rise and fight by the right that Allah sent your Prophet with. Since they have come with their falsehood to extinguish the light of Allah. He says, Rise, Qum, Ya Ubaidah bin Al-Harith, Qum, Ya Hamza, Qum, Ya Ali. So he calls out to the three of the Quraysh who are going to represent the Muslims in the one-to-one -one combat. Ubaidah ibn al-Harith, Hamza, and Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhum. So the Ansaris are back. Now the Quraysh, the three Quraysh's are getting ready. They come out for the Mubaraza. They're wearing helmets. Quraysh can't recognize them either. And the Quraysh say, Man al qawm man antum, who are you all? And when they said this, they said their names. Ubaidullah ibn Harith, Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Mm. Now they name the names. And Utbah and his brother and his son Al Wadid said, Oh, now we have equals. Let's fight. Let's do this. Now we come to the Mubaraza. The details of the one-to-one -one duels that will spark the beginning of the actual battle. In this Mubaraza, they're lined up on one side, the Muslims and the three of Quraysh. Ubaidullah ibn al-Harith ibn Abdul Muttalib, he is the oldest of the three. So he's in his mid-50s, more or less. He is the oldest of the three. And he goes to Utbah, 
who is also the oldest of the three. These are men in their mid-50s, armed, in armor, in the heat, battling it out. Just com- compare that to what the average 50-year-old is doing today. It's a different life. It's a different reality. So the oldest of them, Ubaidah ibn al-Harith, goes to confront Utbah. Hamza goes to Utbah's younger brother, Shayba, and Ali and Walid pair off because they were younger than the rest. So it was arranged by age. The oldest fights the oldest, the second oldest fights the second oldest, and the youngest fights the youngest. So there's a sense of, you know, it's not that it's an absolute fair fight, but there's a sense of honor that you're not going to pair the, the youngest and the strongest with the oldest so that your oldest is paired off with their youngest. So they paired off by the age. So Ibn Hisham in his seerah, he records that Hamza and Ali took out Shayba and Walid instantly. They were absolutely no match for Hamza and Ali. It wasn't a long and protracted sword fight like you see in the movies. You know, if you want to see sword fights that are probably similar to what we're learning about today, uh, look into the ancient samurai sword fights, which were very quick and very deadly. One or two strokes and pivots and it's done. That's how it was. So Hamza and Ali take out Shayba and Walid almost instantly. <laughs> done. Took them out. They were no match. And Hamza and Ali had no injuries, no scrapes, no scratches, no bruises, no nothing. But the same cannot be said for the eldest of the group, the eldest of the three, Ubaidah ibn al-Harith. Remember, he's the oldest of them. So Ubaidah was fighting with Utbah in this duel. And Utbah manages to slice his leg off. You think of these movies you see, you know, with sword fights. You don't think about strikes to the leg. But remember back then, they probably didn't have proper tourniquets or means of treating these kinds of wounds. So a a very deep wound like that can be life-threatening. He gets struck at the leg. His leg is severed. And Ubaid is still alive, but the leg is severed. And as he's wounded and injured, he can't really stay in the fight. So Hamza and Ali go and they deal with Utbah. Because otherwise he would just finish off Ubaidah. So they finish off Utbah. So Utbah, his brother, and his son, all killed in this duel. One, two, three. Hamza and Ali, they bring back Ubaidah to the Muslim side. And he goes and he's in the company of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he says to Rasulullah, Ya Nabi Allah, am I not a shaheed? Am I not going to be a martyr due to this? He didn't think he's going to survive this. Am I not a shaheed, a martyr? And the Prophet ﷺ said, yes. And he succumbed to his wounds three days later. It's understood that he succumbed to his wounds because of, number one, the severity of the wounds. Uh, number two, the distance from proper medical care of, of what was even available in that time. Uh, and number three, his, his age and condition. He was already in his 
mid-50s. So a wound like that is much harder to recover from at that age than if you are someone in your 20s. So he succumbs to his wounds a few days later. But by being brought back to the Muslim side, he's brought back alive. So the Muslims see that all three of their men are alive. That boosts the morale. So here are the Muslims, outnumbered, outarmed, but they're ready to fight. And after this Mubaraza, the Muslims vanquish all three of the foes. And although one is wounded, they're all alive. So now they are pumped up. They're motivated and encouraged. Their morale has grown tremendously just from this Mubaraza. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has actually revealed details about what was going on at this time. In Surah Al-Hajj, because we said that Surah Al-Anfal tells us much of what was going on connected with Badr. But in Surah Al-Hajj, Allah Ta'ala tells us something in connection with this Mubaraza. In that verse 19, Allah Ta'ala says, هَذَانِ خَصْمَانِ اِخْتَصَمُوا فِي رَبِّهِمْ They are the two people who are arguing about their Lord. They are the two people who are arguing, disputing about their Lord. So when you go to the tafsir works, it mentions that one group has a belief about their Lord and the other group has a different belief about their Lord. This was revealed in connection with the Mubaraza between the Muslims and Quraysh. And Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu used to say, I will be the first person who will argue on the day of judgment since I was the first to kill on the day of Badr. And this ayah came down about me. So, Hadani, right, these two, Khasmani, Ikhtasamu fi Rabbihim, of the two, one of them is Sayyidina Ali. That's what is mentioned in the tafsir. So he says, I'm the first to kill on Badr. What about Hamza killing uh, that other individual? Well, of course, that was technically the first to be struck down, but it wasn't in the context of the battle itself in the Mubaraza. What he means is in combat. So after this comes phase two of the battle of Badr, which is what Allah refers to as iltiqa al-jam'an. There are a few verses that mention this phrase. It literally means the meeting of the two groups. So the confrontation not between individuals in one-to-one combat, but the confrontation between the group of the Muslims and the idol worshippers. So when these duels were completed, the Prophet ﷺ came out of his tent. He was observing from this tent. But after the duel was over, he came out and he straightened the lines of the Muslims and he let out the battle cry that was announcing the start of this battle. The battle cry of the Prophet ﷺ on the day of Badr was, this is actually familiar to some of you, it's exactly what Sayyidina Bilal radiallahu anhu was saying when he was being tortured. What was he saying as he was tortured? Ahadun ahad. That was also the battle cry of the Prophet So he says very loudly, ahadun ahad, because they are fighting for the sake of he who is ahad, qul huwallahu, Ahad, fighting for the sake of the one, the unique, the one uh, unto whom there is nothing else like him. So he lets out this battle cry and the lines are preparing. 
and they're about to start this confrontation. And here's where things take a very interesting twist. Because you, you know, we grow up with stories of battle. We see movies of great battles from in the, in the medieval periods. And we have an image about how these things take place. But they're not always like that. So as they're preparing for that confrontation, after he let out the battle cry, the Prophet wasallam, he goes back to the tent. He goes back into the tent and he's with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu with Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh standing outside of the entrance guarding it with his sword. And with Sa'ad are some other Ansar along with him. The Prophet sallallahu goes back inside of the tent and he falls asleep. Remember the Muslims the night before? How was their sleep? It was very good. They slept very soundly through the night. What was the Prophet doing the night before the battle? He was up the whole night in Salat, praying for victory that Allah delivers the Muslims. He goes back into the tent after the battle lines are being drawn and in that moment he dozes off. He dozes off. Now remember that one of the portions of Nubuwa or Wahi rather, some of the Wahi comes in the form of dreams. So the Prophet ﷺ, he goes to sleep and he is literally napping while the two sides can see each other plain as day. There's still some distance, but the Muslims are aligned, the disbelievers are getting themselves ready, and they see each other. And as he's dozing off, and the lines are getting distinct, and they're getting closer to each other, Abu Bakr goes to the Prophet ﷺ inside of the tent, and he says, Ya Rasulullah, they've come close. The Prophet ﷺ wakes up and in that moment when he was sleeping, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had shown him a dream. In that dream, Allah showed him that the enemy, Quraysh, were fewer in number. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also made some of the Muslims the night before see similar dreams where they were outnumbering Quraysh. Were they actually outnumbering Quraysh? No. The reality is they were outnumbered. But some Muslims had dreams that they were outnumbered, outnumbering Quraysh. And the Prophet ﷺ is shown a dream where the Muslims are outnumbering Quraysh. But guess what was also happening on the side of the Mushrikun? They, some of them were also being shown dreams where they were outnumbering the Muslims. What's going on here? One of, from this story, we actually derive a principle of uh, dream interpretation. That sometimes what you see in the dream, the, the meaning is often interpreted as the opposite of what you see. So you may see a dream where you're laughing, and its interpretation is that something will happen that will leave you crying. And it's based on this. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions these dreams in Surah Al-Anfal and the role they had in affecting both sides in the heat of the battle. In Surah Al-Anfal, Allah ta'ala says, 
إذ يريكم إذ يريكم إذ يريكم الله في منامك قليلا ولو أراكهم كثيرا لفشلتم ولا تنازعتم في الأمر ولكن الله سلم إنه عليم بذات الصدور وإذ يريكموهم إذا التقيتم في أعينكم قليلا ويقللكم في أعينهم ليقضي الله أمرا كان مفعولا وإلى الله ترجع الأمور As in your dream Allah showed them to you as few if he had shown them to you all as many now I want you to pay attention to the language here I'm you have to pay attention to the Arabic here because if you just translate it literally it doesn't give the right impression I'll go to the Arabic again Allah says remember when he Allah showed them to you fi manamika your dream the dream of the Prophet as few وَلَوْ أَرَاكَهُمْ كَثِيرًا لَفَشِلْتُمْ If he had shown them to you as many, who's you here? Is you the Prophet or is it the Muslims? It's the Muslims. So pay attention to that. As in your dream, Allah had shown them to you, the Prophet as few. If he had shown them to you all, the Muslims, as many, you all, the Muslims, would have been discouraged. He's not speaking to the Prophet ﷺ here. He's speaking to the Muslims, what would have happened if they were shown them as many. And you would have surely, you would have surely disputed in your decision, but Allah saved you. Indeed, He knows well the secrets of the hearts. And when you met in battle, He showed them to you as few in your eyes, and he made you appear few in their eyes that Allah might accomplish a matter already decreed to Allah belongs to, to Allah do all matters return. So if you imagine there's a group of you, 300, and everyone or many of you have dreams that your enemy is only 100 people. Might, maybe you feel more confident going into the battle thinking that 300 of you are going to fight a hundred. But what do you think would happen if you're shown a dream where 300 of you are facing 1,000? Maybe you're going to be more intimidated. More anxiety will be there. And what if your enemy is shown the same? So if you're more pumped up, if you're more motivated for this battle because you have that feeling of outnumbering the other side, what if they have seen the same thing? They're also going to be motivated. So two motivated sides are going to clash. And this becomes the thing that distinguishes truth from falsehood. And you see all these miracles unfold. So that's what's going on. Now, the Prophet ﷺ was in the tent. He's told. He mentions what he saw in the dream. Sahih Muslim, we have a hadith in Sahih Muslim where the Prophet ﷺ is lining up the army. And then once again, he turns towards the Qibla and he raises his hands in dua. And he says, Oh Allah, fulfill your promise to me. Oh Allah, give me what you have promised me. Oh Allah, if this group of ours is destroyed, you shall not be worshipped on earth after today. So very similar to what he was praying for the night prior to the battle. So he keeps on making this dua over and over again, pleading, tadarru' this imploring, deep imploring. 
and he's making such intense dua, raising his hands, that his rida, this upper garment he's wearing, from moving his hands, raising them high, because he's raising them very high in this dua, that the rida actually falls off and his chest is exposed and open. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he sees this and he goes and takes the rida and he embraces Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, putting it back on and he says, uh, enough ya Rasulullah, your Lord will give you what, what he's promised. Your Lord will give you what he's promised. Allah has promised him victory. Yet here he is pleading. That's the adab of the abd. And he's teaching us that adab. So he makes this dua. Then he stops making the dua. The forces are getting closer. And you see how Allah is making these things happen. The Prophet ﷺ is resting. And then he dozes off into this light sleep again as they are about to confront each other. After this light sleep, he wakes up and he says, Bushra, glad tidings, Ya Abu Bakr. The victory of Allah has come. He didn't say coming. The victory of Allah has come. Here is Jibreel holding the reins of his battle steed with dust on the horse's teeth. Why would a horse have dust on its teeth? Because it's galloping furiously and quickly such that as it's breathing, the dust is kicking up with its hooves and it's getting into his teeth. He says, here's Jibreel holding the reins of his battle steed with the dust on its teeth. And he has the arms of war. One narration says that he described Jibreel السلام, wearing a turban and holding the reins of his battle steed with, steed with one hand. One narration says that Jibreel came with 500 warrior angels under his command. And then there was Mikail with 500 other angels ready for battle. This is of course all in the ghaib, it's all in the unseen realm. And is it possible for human beings who are not prophets to see angels? Absolutely, it's possible. The majority of the ulama, they say that in this possibility, it's established through hadith as well. The hadith of Imran bin Hussein establishes the possibility of uh, seeing angels and having contact with malaika. But the majority of the scholars say that when people who are not prophets have encounters with angelic beings, you either see them and don't hear them speak, or you hear them speak, but you don't see them. And that it is only Anbiya and Rusul who hear them and see them at the same time. But at this moment, the veil is still cast over people. And only for the Prophet ﷺ is that veil lifted where he sees the angels. So here is Rasulullah ﷺ pleading to Allah Ta'ala and praying and asking for victory. And the answer comes and he sees the angel Jibreel and Mikail appear with their own horses, with their own weaponry, with their own battle turbans wrapped with 500 angels, one for Jibreel's side, one for Mikail. He sees this and he communicates that to Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And this is also mentioned in the Quran. In Surah Al-Anfal, Allah also mentions this when he says, إِذْ تَسْتَغِيثُونَ رَبَّكُمْ فَاسْتَجَابَ لَكُمْ أَنِّي مُمِدُّكُمْ بِأَلْفٍ مِنَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ مُرْدِفِينَ 
when you appealed to your Lord for help and he answered you, saying, I am reinforcing you with 1,000 angels in, in succession. Mumiddukum. This is al-madad al-ilahi. So the angels were the means of madad. Right? So this is the madad ilahi, the divine madad of the angels coming to support the Muslims in battle. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the same chapter, right after, وَمَا جَعَلَهُ اللَّهُ إِلَّا بُشْرَى What did the Prophet sallallahu say to Abu Bakr? He woke up and said, Bushra. Allah says, Allah only made it a Bushra for you. وَرِطَطْمَئِنَّ بِهِ قُلُوبُكُمْ وَمَنْ نَصْرُ إِلَّا مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ And to set your hearts at rest. Tatma'in. Right? Victory comes only from Allah. Allah is almighty and wise. And then in verse 12, we have Allah saying more. إِذْ يُوحِيَ رَبُّكَ إِلَى الْمَلَائِكَةِ أَنِّي مَعَكُمْ فَثَبِّتُوا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا سَأُلْقِي فِي قُلُوبِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا الرُّعْبَ فَاضْرِبُوا فَوْقَ الْأَعْنَاقِ وَاضْرِبُوا مِنْهُمْ كُلَّ بَنَانٍ Your Lord inspired the angels. I am with you. So support those who believe. Make them firm. I will cast fear into the hearts of those who disbelieve. So strike above the necks and strike off every fingertip of theirs. You know, and this is one of those verses where people read it and say, oh, that's what Muslims are supposed to do to everybody, right? You know, some, some people read the Quran and take it in that way. But clearly, this is about the battle of Badr. It's in the context of Badr that the angels were sent by Allah as a reinforcement. So, although the veil was cast down and the Muslims couldn't see these angels, there were still some interactions and there were still experiences where they witnessed them in, in different ways. And there are several narrations. We'll mention a couple as we close. We have the narration of Sayyidina Ali recorded by Imam al-Hakim in his Mustadrak. He says, as I was drawing water from the well of Badr, a strong wind blew, a wind so powerful, the likes of which I had never experienced before. And then it passed. And then another strong wind blew, the likes of which I had never seen, and it too passed. And he's referring to the angels making their presence. So the first wind is the wind of the angels of, with Jibreel, those 500. The other is the angels with Mikail alayhim salam. So this is one narration. Ibn Hisham also narrates from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma. Ibn Abbas narrates that a man of Banu Ghifar spoke to me. This is later on, you know. This is after the conquest of Mecca, after Islam has spread. He says that a man from Banu Ghifar, so a Ghifari man, spoke to me saying that I went with a cousin of mine to a mountain that was overlooking Badr. And we were mushriks back then. So these are basically like opportunists. What are they doing? They're just at the mountain to see this battle. You know? They just want to see who's going to win. And whoever wins, once the battle's over, they're going to come down the mountain and mix with everybody and grab this and grab that and take what they can go and take what they can get and be on their way. So he says, I was with a cousin of mine 
and we were on a mountain that overlooked Badr and we were mushriks back then and we were waiting defeat to fall on one of the two sides so that we can plunder with those who plunder as we stood there on the mountains a cloud drew close and we heard the neighing of horses you know how horses sound when they're neighing the neighing of horses and we heard a caller a munadi a caller say go forth Hayzum. as for my cousin when he heard this he was so shocked with fear that his heart stopped and he died on the spot just straight ru'ab that's what the angels were bringing that great fear into the hearts he said his heart stopped he says as for me I nearly died but I managed to hold myself together and he survived this and he goes on to become Muslim he eventually meets Ibn Abbas and he tells him this story he's basically saying hey I was there back in the day and this is what happened and that corresponds with so many other experiences people had on that day hearing this and seeing that so they're not seeing the angels exactly as the Prophet them is seeing them but they are experiencing those angels so this is like we have all the Muslims making their way to Badr we have Quraysh making their way we have the, them camping out we have the duels we have them now marching closer and closer and closer but they haven't yet crashed into each other into the battle they have not thrown themselves into the fray of battle yet but they are inching closer and closer just as the angels are preparing themselves and there to su support and assist the Muslims so next week inshallah our, our final class for 2022 uh, will be the actual details of the thick of the battle once the swords clash the two sides meet and you have the battle and that's when we discuss the clashing of the forces the throwing of the stones when the Prophet threw the stones and we learn about the withdrawal of Iblis who was also there and then the victory that was given to the, the Muslims by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then after that of course we have the aftermath of this battle the reaction of Quraysh when news reached the Meccans the captives of Badr what happened with those non-Muslims who were killed at Badr those who were captured at Badr and all of the details concerning the aftermath we'll get to inshallah beginning next week bi-ithnillahi ta'ala wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam and uh, just in because usually we take a couple of questions there was a question someone had asked about the Muslims who were experiencing the gift of the rain and who were also thirsty and many of whom were unable to take the ghusl how do we reconcile these events with them drawing water from the well of Badr someone had asked this last week and to explain this you should understand that with a well although you have access to water you have to still ration that water because it's not just you taking water like we would take water from our sink 
you, you want to bathe yourself, but priorities entail that we have water to drink and water to give the camels and the horses, and they drink a lot. So the purification is kind of secondary to the needs of survival. So there's no real conflict between them being thirsty or being in Janaba and then receiving the refreshing rain by which they're able to take the ghusl of Janaba even though they had access to water. Because they had access, but these, it's not the kind of access that's enabling them to use the water for that before taking care of the animals and themselves. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, so it was Hamza and Ali who went to Utbah to finish him off after he cut down uh, Ubaidah bin Harith. The question here is who dealt the death blow? If it's two people uh, falling on one person with their swords, they both may have struck him down, but whose strike was the actual blow causing that person's death? So this is what Ali is saying. He's saying, that was me, man. I did that. And that's not the first time this is going to happen. We see later in the seerah that happens uh, during the conquest of Mecca uh, where some people are kind of, you know, in friendly banter, arguing who dealt the death blow to this enemy of Allah. Was it me or was it you? Because this is one of those cases. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. This was, remember, this was not intended as a battle to begin with. And the general rule is that women aren't participating in battle. Of course, we have women who were in battle. That's mentioned in the Sira works. But we have to understand what's actually, what was actually going on. It wasn't that they were, you know, all wearing armor and in the ranks and armed like everyone else. They were playing a supporting role. And it just so happened that due to the nature of warfare and its chaos, they found themselves having to fight and defend themselves. doesn't mean that there was like the women's brigade, right? That's not how it was. So Nusayba, for example, she was not a soldier among soldiers. She just happened to be in that situation of combat. There were no Muslim women uh, on this journey because it was not intended to be a battle in the first place. It was just meant for raiding the caravan. And the Prophet ﷺ had brought with him those 313 or so people. Uh, but there will be some confrontations where Muslim women are present in playing different supporting roles, some in combat roles too. How did the Prophet Muhammad angels, were they in their angelic form or were they in the form, <coughs> like when Jibreel used to come to him as a... They're not, yeah, he's not seeing him in the original primary form of Jibreel salam because that is, he, he's enormous. Just the wings themselves stretch beyond the heavens and the earth and size he's seeing him in this human form but it's a very very tall towering powerful man who's wearing a turban 
and who has a horse. Speaking to that, it wasn't there a hadith, I'm not sure, I don't remember where he was wearing it. Jibreel was specifically wearing, like, he looked like one of the Sahaba. He was wearing a green turban or something of that nature. I don't remember if this was Madhya or Hadara. Yeah. yeah, it's, uh, I don't recall the specific details of the color of the turban. Um, actually, one narration, if I recall, does say white. But we hear of black turbans in battle, but that wasn't always the case. And this wasn't intended as a battle, it just turned into one. Yeah. Can you repeat the first part of the question? He said, Inni Jarul Lakum. Why didn't he say Inni Jarukum? Hmm. Yeah, I mean you could look at the grammatical difference between Inni Jarukum or Inni Jarun Lakum. But here he's basically trying to swell them with pride. He's first remember he's encouraging them to go forth, pretending to be Suraqa ibn Madik in this form, trying to give them the impression that uh, Kinana has, uh, is supporting them from behind. Now he's there, and we'll be reading the details about his presence and his fleeing, but Allah mentions this in Surah Al-Anfal. He's basically puffing them up with pride to encourage them. We always have to go back to the ultimate objective of Iblis. What is his ultimate objective? To get everyone to go to hell. So it, he whispered to them to do acts of kufr and shirk and blasphemy but he also wants to encourage them to try to fight those who are upholding the truth because if they can fight the truth that means falsehood spreads and more people go to hell and if they get killed it's a win-win for him because they go to hell dying upon kufr and shirk that's his ultimate goal now seeing the angels the angelic presence he realizes that this is not going to turn out the way he wanted it to and so he goes. He turns on his heels. And he, yeah, we'll, we'll explore that story in some detail next week. We'll look at the dialogue. Hmm? I thought he was friends with Mushrikun, but now I understand that he is enemy of humanity. It all serves that ultimate objective, which is to land people in Jahannam forever out of his bitter jealousy, envy, and rancor towards human beings. And the fact that they were honored more than he was honored. So this is all just an aspect of that, that root of jealousy and rancor.